This episode features discussion of abduction and torture that some people may find offensive. Listener discretion is advised, especially for children under 13. On the night of September 19, 1961, Betty and Barney Hill couldn't have possibly anticipated the cosmic, terrifying direction their road trip would take. They had been headed home to Portsmouth, New Hampshire after visiting Niagara Falls. As they drove through the isolated White Mountains, something impossible had happened. But at the moment, neither could remember just what that was. They were paralyzed, frozen. There was a roadblock. At first, they thought it was the police. But the lights were brighter than any cop car. Suddenly, through a surge of orange and red light, the couple could make out figures in the road. The figures approached both sides of the car. Barney and Betty were still frozen, their minds filled with fresh horror as the figures came into view. They weren't police. They weren't even men. Their eyes were black and slanted, practically wrapping around the sides of their heads. And their uniforms were not that of highway troopers, shiny and black like nothing either of the hills had ever seen. The figures opened the car doors. They began to pull the couple from their vehicle. Neither of the hills understood what was happening, and soon they wouldn't remember anything happening at all. But in these fleeting moments of consciousness, Betty at least thought she knew exactly what she was experiencing. They were being kidnapped by aliens from another world. Are we alone? Have we been alone? Will we be alone? Stories of alien visitation have been ingrained in human history. Alien life may not be confirmed, but our obsession with it can't be ignored. Welcome to Extraterrestrial on the ParCast Network. Every Tuesday, we visit the marvelous and strange stories about our encounters with beings from another world and discuss how much validity there are to these stories. I'm your host, Bill Thomas. And I'm Tim Johnson. Today, we're discussing the abduction of Betty and Barney Hill, two Americans who claimed to have been accosted by a UFO as they were driving home one night in 1961. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. In September 1961, while returning home to New Hampshire from a trip to Niagara Falls, middle-aged American couple Barney and Betty Hill claimed to have been abducted and experimented upon by an alien crew. This week, we'll learn Barney's full story following his attempts to recall his lost memories and cope with the resulting trauma. His sessions with psychiatrist and hypnotist Dr. Benjamin Simon remain some of the most chilling accounts of an alien encounter available to the public. Next week, we'll follow Betty's side of the story as she recovers memories of her own and attempts to convince skeptics. Ultimately, the Hills would become the grandparents of the American UFO phenomenon, the first people to report abduction by aliens from another world. The beginning of modern space exploration is difficult to pinpoint exactly. However, the launch of the satellite Sputnik 1 by the Soviet Union in 1957 was one of the most significant events in the timeline. 
The artificial sphere was not even two feet in diameter. It orbited the Earth for only a few months. It carried no weapons, no computer. It was, in essence, a glorified flying radio. But Sputnik had an inestimable impact on the human subconscious. As Americans watched reports of the spacecraft on their newfangled television sets, they felt awe, but also dread. Dread at the capabilities of the USSR. Dread at the Earth's insignificance in the cosmos. Dread that aliens might really be out there. For obvious reasons, the 1957 launch of Sputnik led to an increase in sightings of unidentified flying objects. Whether or not these reports were valid, one thing was for sure. Humanity was spending a lot more time looking up in wonder at the stars. Sitting at his father-in-law's home in Kingston, New Hampshire, Barney Hill had no idea that in just four years' time, he would be the first man to report abduction by a UFO. It was a clear night in 1957. Barney, 35, was with his wife Betty and her family, the Barretts. The stars were out in full force. Such a view prompted Betty's father to suggest that he had seen Sputnik, the Russian satellite, pass by recently. The sister-in-law chimed in. She lived nearby, and on a night as clear as this, she had seen a genuine UFO. It was long and cigar-shaped, and it was orbited by other smaller craft. Betty became excited and shared how she had been reading that scientists thought there was the possibility of life on other planets. It was just a matter of time before they used their telescopes to find one of these civilizations. Barney didn't add to the conversation. He was skeptical of it all. As a black man, he had grown up in a country that looked down on him. Barney had to work hard for what he had in life. The Barretts had too, but they were white, and so in his mind, they hadn't experienced the same obstacles. By 1961, Barney, now 39, was working as a dispatcher for the post office. It was a long night shift that demanded constant effort. Even worse, it required that Barney drive 60 miles for his commute, as he and Betty now lived in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. He couldn't help but wonder what lay waiting in the dark of the woods as he drove to work at night. He followed his night shifts with volunteer work as a legal redress chairman for the NAACP. Betty joined him in this as an assistant secretary. The couple fought for their rights as well as the rights of others. Betty, 42, was a social worker. She believed in helping people. In college, it had been about fighting for an integrated student body. As an adult, she worked welfare cases. Barney admired her courage. Considering how hard they had been working, Barney pitched a spur-of-the-moment trip. They'd take the car and the money they had in their pockets and drive to Niagara Falls, then return down through the White Mountains. Their route formed a perfect loop going west out of New Hampshire and returning from the north after exiting Canada. It was a much-needed trip. And for the most part, it went off without a hitch. Four days later, they were on their way back home, refreshed and ready to jump back into their hectic schedules. It was September 19, 1961, a Tuesday. The sun had long since gone down, and Barney and Betty Hill were alone on the road, surrounded by thick trees on either side. Barney was all about punctuality. He had pushed Betty into hitting the road quickly that night. Beforehand, he had written down the mileage of the car, and he wanted to see how fast they could reach home and what the exact distance was, traveling only slightly above the speed limit, of course. He had enjoyed this trip they had taken together, but it was time to get back into the real world. They drove a 1957 Chevrolet Bel Air. The car had chrome paneling that glowed in the moonlight. 
The surrounding mountains had witnessed millennia of change in this valley. To the mountains, the automobile was an alien, a shining, roaring contraption that would have been impossible just a few decades before. If the Earth is a speck in the universe, the hills were a speck in the White Mountains. Betty held her dachshund, Delcy, in her lap. The dog was asleep, uninterested in the dark forests whipping by outside. Barney smiled at the sight of them. But Betty began to look slightly concerned. She shifted in her seat, placing the dog on the floor. She tapped Barney, pointing to the rear view. She was bothered by a light that had suddenly appeared between the full moon and Jupiter. He shrugged. It was probably just one of the new satellites the government had been launching. Barney pulled over so they could get out and look at the craft with their binoculars. He held Delcy's leash while the dog peed and allowed Betty to observe the craft. That's not a satellite, she said. Annoyed, he handed her the leash and took the binoculars for himself. Holding them to his face, he was surprised to find that the light was moving fast. Oh well, must just be a plane then. Only he would have expected any planes to be headed north toward Canada. This one was making circles above the mountains to the west. He couldn't hear any engine or any propellers. Probably just a plane, though. He hurried Betty back into the car. They continued along. Barney didn't want any further interruption. He wanted to make good time on the road. But then Betty was up in her seat again, looking through the rear view. He looked too, and was surprised to see that the light was still there. And it seemed to be following them. Barney quickly pulled over again. Getting out, he observed the craft once more. It almost seemed to hover. Suddenly, it streaked across the sky, flying far past their car and up above Cannon Mountain. Barney, Betty said, that's not a plane. His anger grew. Well, what the hell else could it be? Then he realized Betty thought this was a UFO. He rolled his eyes, gesturing to get back in the car. As they continued along, so did the light, weaving in and out of mountains and forests. Barney thought that a military plane shouldn't be following them like this. He was going to call and report it when they got home. It did bother him that it moved so fast, and that he couldn't make out propellers or hear a sound. But Betty was being silly. This wasn't some UFO. That was nonsense. He wished it would just make a sound. He wished he could hear it so badly. Betty just kept going on. It's not a plane. Look, look. She said she could see it through the clouds. She said it was huge and glowing. This only made him more worried. Betty wasn't usually like this. She didn't just make things up. The light ricocheted across the sky, changing direction at a whim, moving in forward and reverse. He pulled over for the third time. While Betty was busy looking at the sky, he reached for the glove compartment and pocketed the pistol he kept inside. Fuming, trying to hide his fear, he jumped out, moving to the back of the car. He popped the trunk and removed a tire wrench. Betty continued to question him, to point out that it couldn't be a plane. Couldn't she just be quiet for one moment while he thought? Maybe he could flag it down, brandish his wrench to show he wasn't afraid. Maybe... Both ducked down as something bright, loud, and massive swung across the road, not 100 feet ahead of them. They watched as it flew over the tree line and into a nearby field. Then, they turned to look at each other. 
it definitely wasn't a plane. Up next, Barney encounters the UFO. Now, back to the story. On the night of September 19, 1961, Barney and Betty Hill had been returning home to New Hampshire from a trip to Niagara Falls. Impossibly, a strange light in the sky began to follow them. They soon realized it was a mysterious aircraft, a UFO. And now, it traveled down into a field right next to the road where they had stopped. Barney left Betty at the car. He quickly made his way through the tree line. He gripped a wrench in his right hand. He wondered why he didn't just keep driving, why he didn't try to get Betty to safety. This thing from the sky, it had to be a plane, some sort of new airplane that the government was testing. Betty couldn't be right. UFOs weren't real. They were things from books and television programs. He arrived in a field. It was suitably eerie, tall grass waving in the breeze, creatures watching from all around in the forest. This was the same type of wilderness he was used to driving through on his commute. He didn't like being exposed like this. And then it appeared, more unbelievable than anything he could have imagined. An enormous disc, many feet across, appeared in the sky not 100 feet above him. It had seemed long and tubular in the sky, but now he could see that it was shaped like a pancake and the front was one big window. He squinted. The light from the window was so bright at first that he thought it was some kind of massive headlight. His vision adjusted. He could see inside the craft. There were men, or at least they looked like men. All of them busied themselves with their work, save for one. At the front window, near a console, a small man, dressed all in black, turned and smiled, looking Barney right in the eye. Barney held his binoculars up. He felt he couldn't look away. Something happened. His movements were not his own. He heard a voice, but the creature's lips weren't moving. No, the voice was in Barney's head. It told him to just keep looking, to just keep looking. Two fins, like long metal plane wings, began to extend from the sides of the ship. There were red lights on either side. They further transfixed Barney as he continued to stare, frozen. Then a ramp began to lower from the bottom of the craft. Just keep looking, just keep looking. Barney was overwhelmed. The man's eyes, they were black and slanted in a way he had never seen before. And as these eyes continued to stare, they became more than just eyes. They seemed to look past Barney into not just the space behind him, but into the depths of his mind, probing, intruding. Barney had the intuition that he was about to be captured. Terrified, he finally felt he could move again, and he turned and ran across the field. Betty was irate when he returned to the car. But seeing the fear in his eyes, the speed with which he moved, she fell silent. Barney quickly put the car into gear, racing down the road. Betty kept asking him what he had seen. She wanted to stop and go back. As they raced along, they both jumped at the sudden emergence of sounds emanating from the back of the car. It sounded like radio waves or some sort of static. 
What was going on? Barney didn't know what to say to Betty. But before he could form a thought, he became sleepy. His vision narrowed, his head bobbed. Everything went black. Time seemed to pass slowly, as if in a fever dream. Barney could feel certain sensations. Light occasionally breached his shut eyelids. Eventually, there was the familiar sensation of a steering wheel in his hands. He could feel his foot pressed against the gas pedal. The car vibrated beneath him. Slowly, his other senses came back to him. Was that Betty? What was she saying? God, she wasn't still going on about the UFO, was she? Finally, her voice came into focus. Betty was remarking, Oh, look, Barney, that's where we are. His vision was next to return, only it wasn't like waking up normally because his eyes had already been open. Looking around, he realized he was driving, that the sun was coming up. He looked over to see Betty pointing at a sign that indicated there were 17 miles from Concord. His stomach flipped. What just happened? How could they already be so close to Concord? They had just been in the White Mountains. How had they traveled 85 miles without being aware of it? They looked at one another in confusion. Their fear grew. Barney asked Betty if he had been asleep at the wheel. She couldn't say. She just remembered the UFO, a buzzing sound and a bright red light. Betty immediately thought that the aircraft must have done something to them. Barney brushed her off. He was angry with her for wanting this to be alien so badly. But the man he had seen in the window, that man didn't look right. And certainly, he had never seen an aircraft like the large disc. Had they truly just encountered extraterrestrials? Beings not of this Earth? He hoped that going from the danger and uncertainty of the woods to the comfort of home would give him a sense of safety. All he wanted was to forget this whole thing. With both Barney and Betty in a state of confusion, neither realized that not only had they traveled a great distance without realizing it, but they were also two hours behind their initial schedule. There were two hours of their trip that they couldn't account for. Once home, something felt wrong. Barney, for his part, felt the need to go into the bathroom. He undid his pants and looked at his genitalia. They looked fine, but his penis gave the sensation of having recently ejaculated. It felt touched. Betty went to change her clothes and saw that some sort of pink substance had been splattered on her dress. As she got naked, she felt compelled to finger her belly button. Later, when removing additional items from the trunk, the couple noticed strange, shiny spots on the back of the car. Recalling the night before, they feared radiation of some kind. Betty immediately wanted to call her family and let them know what had happened. Barney was annoyed. Why would she want people to know about this? And anyway, they would never believe her. But she persisted. She wanted to call Janet, her sister. Barney just shook his head in defeat. Betty dialed Janet. As he watched Betty on the phone, he began to feel butterflies in his stomach as she recounted what had happened. The strange light in the sky, the craft swooping across the street, how their bodies felt violated now that they had returned home. His mind raced as he considered how people would react to their story. 
No one would believe this. Even worse, people would accuse them of wanting attention, the social worker and the post-dispatcher trying to spice up their marriage. And yet, he knew that everything Betty was sharing with Janet had actually happened. They had experienced something highly unusual, maybe even dangerous. And though he didn't know that he wanted to call it aliens just yet, he couldn't come up with a better explanation. Betty got off the phone with Janet even more excited. Her UFO enthusiast sister had done nothing to temper her belief in what she had experienced. She said that Janet had a scientist neighbor who could maybe let them know what to do. Betty awaited a return call. It didn't take long. Betty raced to answer. Barney just winced at the sound. On the other end of the line, Janet said that she was with her neighbor. The neighbor suggested they get a compass and hold it near anything they were concerned might be affected by radiation. The idea was that any electromagnetic emissions from potential radiation would send a charge through the compass and cause it to malfunction. Betty asked for Barney's compass. He refused. Couldn't they just drop it? Did they really need to take this any further? His compass was cheap. A malfunction wouldn't prove anything. She told him to keep his opinions and give her the compass. As usual, Betty got her way. She rushed outside to the car. Rain was coming down lightly. Running the compass along the side of the car, she found no result. She looked to Barney, and he just shrugged. But then, determined, she ran to the trunk where she found the strange, shiny spots from earlier. She ran the compass along an untouched part of the trunk. Still, no result. So she brought the compass over to one of the shiny spots. The needle began to spin wildly. Betty wasn't quite sure what it was yet, but something very strange was going on. And maybe, just maybe, it had something to do with the increase in UFO sightings leading up to 1961. While the U.S. Air Force had already established Project Blue Book to examine these cases, a separate civilian organization emerged. NICAP, the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, was founded by several former military personnel and a series of engineers and scientists. NICAP felt that while the military was willing to acknowledge the UFO sighting phenomena and take reports from affected civilians, it rarely took any of these claims seriously. And this was a problem for NICAP members, who felt that the sheer volume of sightings throughout the 50s warranted further study. This wasn't to say that they were convinced of the existence of aliens. Rather, they felt that something, whether it be secret American or Russian aircraft, a new cosmic phenomenon or new mental disorder, was affecting average American citizens. In essence, they were an advocate for those who were affected by UFOs, those whose stories were left uninvestigated by the military. And yes, some of them were looking to finally answer the question of whether there is life on other planets. A few days after the incident, Barney and Betty reported their experience to the nearby Pease Air Force Base in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. That report reads mostly as a simple UFO sighting, of which there had already been many in the area. It's clear that, at least for now, Barney was keeping his memory of the strange man in the aircraft window to himself. There was no next step with the military. They simply took the report and that was it. However, Betty became more and more interested in the topic of UFOs. She read a book by Major Donald Kehoe, a founding member of NICAP. 
On September 26, 1961, Betty wrote to Kehoe, hoping that he might be able to shed some light on her experience. Also around this time, just a few days after the UFO sighting, the couple began to undergo extreme anxiety. Weeks after the initial incident, Barney and Betty were driving outside of Portsmouth when they approached a stalled car blocking the road. As Barney slowed down, he noticed that Betty was growing agitated in her seat. She was behaving not dissimilarly from when they had first been chased by the light in the White Mountains. As he continued to slow, Barney saw true panic in Betty's eyes, and she reached for the car door handle trying to escape. He blocked her with one hand while steering their car around the roadblock with the other. It disturbed Barney to see how his previously calm wife was now so easily reduced to such panic. It disturbed him even more that internally, he was having to hide a similar level of fear and confusion over the White Mountains incident. When Barney pressed Betty further as to her state of mind, she revealed that she had experienced five straight nights of disturbing dreams. The dreams were so real that they almost seemed like memories. When he asked her why she didn't tell him, Betty pointed out that he wasn't at home when it happened, as he worked the night shift, and that she knew he wanted to try and put the entire UFO business behind him. She refused to share any further details. The Hills finally received a response from NICAP, and on October 21, 1961, over a month after the UFO encounter, Walter Webb, a scientific advisor to NICAP, arrived at their door. Barney found Webb to be a far more serious and plain man than he had expected. This was no dirty, eccentric conspiracy theorist. He worked with the Smithsonian in Cambridge, and he himself claimed to have spotted a UFO years ago. Even more surprising were his methods. His questioning of the Hills was extremely scientific. He asked them to go over their stories separately. He would make them backtrack to different beats and try to get them to contradict themselves. The Hills were prompted to draw pictures of the spacecraft, also separately. Their depictions were very similar, featuring a large disc with a front window revealing small men inside. They both included the fins extending from the sides with red lights on the ends. As Barney told his story, progressing through the series of stops and attempts to spot the spacecraft, a chill began to creep up his spine. The hair stood up on his arm. He came to the point at which he arrived in the field and the craft descended in front of him. Though he had omitted the details about the small men and the enigmatic leader in his report to the Air Force, he felt comfortable revealing the whole truth to NICAP. He spoke of raising the binoculars to his face, of squinting to look in the window of the craft. But then... Then something happened. His memory blurred. He lost track of the narrative. He went back, described getting out of the car, grabbing his pistol, walking into the field, and... His memory was gone. How strange. When it came to be Betty's turn, she offered to go into her dreams, but Barney had to leave the room as Betty had done for him. He was annoyed again at not being able to learn what was going on in her head. The whole interview and investigation of their belongings took up to six hours. And by the end, Webb was thoroughly convinced as to the veracity of the couple's story. In his final report to NICAP, he wrote the following. It is the opinion of this investigator, after questioning these people for over six hours and studying their reactions and personalities during that time, that they were telling the truth. 
and the incident occurred exactly as reported, except for some minor uncertainties and technicalities that must be tolerated in any such observation where human judgment is involved. Unfortunately, Webb's report would lead to more new questions than answers. What happened in the period of time that Barney couldn't remember? Were Betty's dreams real or imagined? Hypnosis was broached as a possible method by which the couple could recall their blocked memories. But it was an uncommon practice among psychiatrists, and the couple were advised that forcing the memories out could be dangerous. Only, for Barney at least, his memory did not improve, and his anxiety increased as a result. He became so stressed that he developed an ulcer. One morning in March 1962, Barney got ready for a shower in his bathroom and was shocked to look down at his groin and find that there was a perfect circle of warts surrounding his genitals. While the warts themselves presented no danger, they only added to his stressed state of mind. By the summer of 1962, he was regularly seeing a psychiatrist. His psychiatrist, Dr. Duncan Stevens, felt that it was more important to focus on the concrete areas of Barney's life, the things that he could remember. Barney was, after all, a black man living in the United States in 1961, married to a white woman. That, in and of itself, was a source of anxiety. He had been in the Army for three years, serving in World War II, and he had two sons from a previous marriage, now both living in Philadelphia, rarely seeing their father. Dr. Stevens would help Barney to unpack these issues over the course of a year, from the summer of 1962 to the summer of 1963. And yet, even after a year of therapy, Barney still wondered at the incident in the White Mountains. Neither he nor Betty could recall memories from the missing two hours. When Barney brought up the idea of hypnosis to Dr. Stevens, an idea previously considered and ultimately foregone, Stevens immediately thought of a colleague, Dr. Benjamin Simon. One of the foremost experts in the psychiatric use of hypnosis, Simon would become the key to unlocking Barney and Betty's memories of the UFO incident. He would help them to realize that their experience had been no mere UFO sighting, but a full-on abduction. Next, we'll uncover Barney's memories as he undergoes hypnosis and relives that infamous night in the White Mountains. Now, back to the story. On September 19, 1961, Barney and Betty Hill of Portsmouth, New Hampshire had experienced what Betty was sure was an alien encounter. What was certain was that neither could remember a two-hour stretch of time when they traveled through the White Mountains of New Hampshire. After two years of working with the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, or NICAP, and a year of Barney working with a psychiatrist, neither had made any progress in recovering their lost memories. By the fall of 1963, the couple was working with Barney's therapist, Dr. Duncan Stevens, to locate a qualified hypnotist who could aid the Hills in getting their memories back. Dr. Benjamin Simon was the obvious choice. Located nearby in Boston, Massachusetts, he had been at the forefront of hypnosis research throughout his career. With degrees from Johns Hopkins, Stanford, and Washington universities, Simon combined neuroscience with his clinical psychiatry practice to achieve positive results among his patients. He had first begun to use hypnosis as a tool in World War II, where he used the practice to treat those suffering from PTSD. Hypnosis is, 
put very simply, the placing of the patient in an extreme state of concentration, usually brought on through the repetition of quiet, calming words and sounds. While in this state, the hypnotist is able to suggest that the patient perform certain actions, recall memories, or even change their thought patterns. In everyday life, a huge variety of external stimuli and internal anxieties might otherwise prevent the patient from accomplishing what they can under hypnosis. A hypnotized patient can be told to ignore pain as they're not conscious of the fear that usually accompanies such sensations. And most importantly, in the case of the Hills, they can be made to recall blocked memories as they no longer experience the fear and doubt that caused them to block the memories in the first place. However, they cannot be made to do any of these things against their will. A true hypnotic state can only be brought on with the complete consent of the patient. In the case of the Hills, this wasn't a problem. Betty had always wanted to uncover the truth. And Barney, though resistant to reliving the encounter at first, now realized that the only way to beat his fear was to face it. Dr. Simon agreed to begin hypnosis sessions with the Hills, though he wanted them to first get through the holiday season of 1963. Simon was a professional. He knew that hypnosis was not an exact science. It was possible for the hypnotist to become biased in their questioning and lead the patient to develop false memories. It's also possible for patients to prepare stories beforehand, to share stories afterward, to fake being under hypnosis. But the hypnosis sessions were to be performed in the most scientific possible manner. Barney and Betty were to be kept separate so that anything uncovered in the sessions could not be learned right away by the other. He would also induce amnesia at the end of each session so that even the individual could not recall what they had shared. In this way, he hoped to prevent the couple from swapping stories and presenting any kind of deceptive narrative. To begin, he would spend the first few sessions in January 1964 to help the Hills grow accustomed to being hypnotized. There was always the possibility that they would be resistant to the process or even immune to it. Luckily, both were easily put under within those first few sessions, going into a complete trance state. Betty could even be convinced to not feel pain. They avoided getting into the night of the abduction until Simon was sure they were ready. He needed to know that he could keep them under, even while experiencing unpleasant memories. By February, a month after the Hills had began their sessions, Simon was confident that they could safely relive their trauma. It was February 22, 1964, two years and three months after the incident with the UFO. The Hills sat in the reception area of Dr. Benjamin Simon. Barney was the first to begin his sessions. He kissed Betty on the cheek as he left her in the waiting room. Barney greeted the doctor warmly. The man always had a way of making him feel at ease. He was directed to sit in the chair across from the doctor's desk. He did so gladly. Dr. Simon asked him if he wanted a cigarette. He said yes, reaching out for one, not realizing that this was the hypnotic cue that would put him under. Barney felt nothing, thought of nothing. The doctor began by asking him to recount the trip to Niagara Falls in September 1961. Barney used specific details to describe the journey. His suggestible state meant he left nothing out. But of most interest were the various moments in his story where issues of race came into play. While at a diner with Betty, their waitress was of mixed race. Barney wondered whether she passed as white with most people. 
Driving into Montreal, he noticed black people mingling out in the open. He didn't realize there were many black people in Canada. And there was a moment at yet another diner wherein Barney saw some teenagers that he worried might accost the interracial couple. But his worries ended up being unfounded. Right away, Barney revealed himself to be deeply affected by questions of how well black people were fitting into modern society. Was he as conscientious of these issues as any black man of the period? Or did these memories indicate some deeper paranoia that was generating his belief in aliens? Finally, Dr. Simon and Barney arrived at the subject of the encounter in the White Mountains. Barney described the encounter much as we have already heard. His terror was real. He actually begged Dr. Simon to allow him to wake up. Dr. Simon assured him that he was safe and that he should continue. He breathed heavily, gulping for air, but Dr. Simon's control was absolute. Barney felt he had to share what had happened. In his mind, he went back to the point in time where he ran back to the car and tried to get Betty to safety. Barney became drowsy. The car slowed. It was like a dream. His vision filled with light. It was red and swirling like the sun. As he squinted, he could make out small figures in the road. I gotta get my gun, he screamed on the inside. Dr. Simon watched with surprise at Barney's extreme responses to his memories. He was shouting these things out loud, sobbing. In the reception area, Betty began to tear up upon hearing her husband's anguish. Back in Barney's memory, as soon as he climbed out of the car and onto the street, he saw him, the man with the eyes. He was in the aircraft, staring at Barney. Barney thought that he looked like a captain with his black uniform and scarf. He looked like a Nazi. Those eyes, they're in my brain, he thought. But once more, he was frozen. God, give me strength. He didn't have any money. He didn't have anything. The eyes seared themselves into his brain. Just keep looking. Just keep looking. And then he was floating. His arms moved out to his sides, his legs dangled beneath him. Now his eyes closed, but he could feel his feet bumping against pebbles in the road and then the smooth metal of a ramp. They were taking him aboard. Dr. Simon briefly ordered Barney to pause. He needed to switch the tape in his recorder. Simon did so and they resumed. Inside the craft, Barney could only imagine what was going on as he kept his eyes sealed shut. Or as far as he knew, the alien was making him keep his eyes shut. The cold metal of an operating table rose to greet him as he finally laid down on his back. As he went to stretch, he noticed that his feet dangled off the end of the table. His anxiety suddenly swelled once more as he realized they aimed to operate on him. I don't want to be operated on, he slurred. Then there was a strange sound followed by a stranger sensation as some sort of cylindrical device cupped his genitals. Before he could cry out, he felt a tube insert into his urethra. There was the sensation of ejaculating and then nothing. It would seem that this particularly distressing part of the procedure is where Barney's memory of the incident ended. Even under hypnosis, he had no recollection of seeing Betty aboard the craft, nor could he speak to how he went from the exam table to back in his car driving toward Portsmouth. The session had therefore been both a success and a failure. Simon told Barney that he could now wake up, but that before he did so, he was to forget everything. 
Barney blinked back into the waking world, feeling as if he had only just arrived in the doctor's office. Dr. Simon had clearly established that Barney had experienced a trauma, and on some level, Barney associated that trauma with alien abduction. But Simon was far from being convinced of life from other worlds. There was a definite racial element to Barney's entire story. Could he be conflating his fear of experiencing racism with some sort of shared delusion of aliens? But then again, how could a post office dispatcher from New Hampshire dream up such an elaborate and specific fantasy? Dr. Simon had no easy answers to these questions. But he knew that potential further clues lied not only within Barney's mind, but within the mind of his wife, Betty. Next week on Extraterrestrial, we'll hear the rest of Betty's story as she uncovers the most shocking memory of all, an actual conversation with an alien being. You can listen to Extraterrestrial and all of ParCast's other podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. We'll be back next week. Until then, don't forget to keep your eyes on the sky. Extraterrestrial was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Carly Madden. Extraterrestrial is written by Greg Castro and stars Bill Thomas and Tim Johnson.